This is exactly right. I'm Sarah Iyer. And I'm Stephen Ray Morris. Hosts of the Purrcast. That's Purr with three R's. It's a podcast all about cats. We can't talk to cats, so we talk to people who know and love them. Each episode, we invite a fellow feline lover, comedians, celebrities, kitty caretakers, and animal artists, to name a few, and we gush with them about our favorite furry friends. Tune in to The Purrcast on Exactly Right Network for new episodes every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe to The Purrcast and all of Exactly Right's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Right meow. This is the fall line. In this season's field interviews, you're going to hear some occasional fuzziness, but we've done our best to minimize it. Throughout the episode, we will use a mix of redaction and pseudonyms to omit the names of Monica and Michael's parents, who will be referred to in this podcast as John and Jane. 28 years ago, at the height of a southern coastal summer, two children disappeared. This is a story with no ending, not yet, but perhaps there is no beginning either, just a hundred points gone hazy, even in the memories of those who want to remember the most. There is no media to help them recall the details, and who's to say if those details are even true? After all, as in so many cases, there's the official story, and then there's the patchwork of secrets and recollection and rumors that make up the family's own version. Then there are the constant, uneasy undercurrents so low down that we sometimes forget they're there. Monica Bennett was 15 years old when she disappeared, and her half-brother Michael was a newly minted 14. In June of 1989, Monica was a rising junior at Glenn Academy in Brunswick, Georgia. She was a friendly, funny teenager who'd had a few boyfriends, including one or two bad boys, that weren't really all that bad. Michael was more circumspect. He was handsome, quiet, one to hang back and watch, to gather information and to process it before he came to a decision. In the following interview excerpt, Monica and Michael's grandmother, Evelyn, and their aunt, Wanda, will offer what they remember of the children. Miss Evelyn, the maternal grandmother, is 83. Though she lived in Brunswick, she didn't see them much. I am their grandmother. Mm -hmm. Maternal? Yes. Yes. So you're the mother of their mother. Right. Okay, so let's go back, if we can, to when they were little. I would love to know what you remember about their personalities. Well, as far as I can remember, because she didn't bring them around me. So Monica, at one point, Monica and, uh, and Sheila... They stayed with me for a while, mm-hmm. while their mother, you know, was out and about. And um, they were just typical little children. But Michael has never stayed with me. But once in a while, she would bring him around. But he never was one to say, I want to go to my grandmama's house, you know, if he came, if she brought him. He'd come, but other than that, he didn't come on his own. But as far as I can tell, he wasn't no 
well, mischievous child, you know, he just do like any other children, you know, they like to fight and whatnot, but nothing, I'll say, serious. Do you have an understanding of why your daughter didn't bring him around as much? I am pretty sure that it was because of her husband. He didn't like me. and I, I, I certainly hadn't done anything to him, but I think he wanted to control her. So that's why um, they didn't come around. I'm their aunt. I am the sister um, of their mother. Okay, so can you tell us, Miss Wanda, when Michael and Monica were young, did you see them frequently? Um, yes, I lived in the same town as them in Brunswick. Um, I, I saw them occasionally, I would say. Um, not really sure how often, but yeah, I saw them occasionally. And, um, the last time, um, that I saw them, they were actually living in the same apartment complex that I lived in at the time. Given that you lived in the same complex, did you see them as frequently as you might typically have, them being your niece and nephew? Pretty much, yes. Um, I don't even remember how long they were living out there. I was living out there longer than them, before them, actually. And um, it's a large complex, so they lived on the back side of me. And between us is a large open field where the kids can go out there and play. So our the apartments, um, the back of them faced each other. Can you describe their personalities from knowing them when they were little? If you want to start with Monica, what was she like? Um, she seemed happy. Um, a little jokester. Um, she didn't seem like she was troubled or anything in any way. Um, she would open up and talk. So she didn't seem like she was like overly shy or anything. How about Michael? He always, to me, seemed a little quiet and reserved. Um, he didn't necessarily seem troubled either. He would just kind of like sit back and watch type. I wasn't around them enough like that to know, like when they kind of like you say, when person let the hair down and just kind of relax and just it wasn't like that. What was your relationship like with your sister? She was your oldest sister. What was it like when y'all were growing up? What's your age difference? I don't know what the age difference is, but it's it's a very big gap. A big one? Um, yeah. So pretty much what I can recall is when I was little, I don't know, maybe around the age of 9 or 10 or something like that, um, she was already in high school or, or just maybe getting ready to graduate from high school or something like that. And um, and I remember um, she had a, a boyfriend. His name was Joe. Yeah, and um, that would be Sheila's dad. 
So, um, did you think they were cool? Yeah, because he used to come around and, and we'd hang out with them, even though they may have wanted us to not hang out with them and we'd aggravate them. So, but we always got along good with her. She It's just that it was a very big gap between the age that she was a lot older than us and she had friends that she'd go and hang out with. And we were always confined, like, in the house or, t- or near the house with people our age. So, and then as she got older and she got married and grown, you know, and move out and stuff. So it was a big gap, even more bridge, because then she was living in Alabama. So we'll keep in touch um, at least once a month, I'll say, not like a weekly or daily type thing, um, either on Facebook or, or maybe on the phone or through my mom. Monica and Michael went missing on the same day, June 21st. The police report says June 22nd, and that this disappearance was reported on the 24th. But all the other sources report the actual disappearance as having occurred on the 21st. We don't have the answers to either discrepancy here, the different date reported, or the lag in reporting. But either way, we end in the same place. Monica and Michael were gone. They weren't mentioned on TV or in the papers. Runaways never were, not then. There were no phone calls, no neighborhood sightings, nothing. Since that day, there hasn't been a breath of them. Not a blip on a social security card, or a job application, or a marriage, or a divorce, or an obituary. From the outset, the situation itself seems unusual. How often do siblings disappear at the same time, with none of their brothers or sisters having the faintest idea that they might? Perhaps the answer there is simple. They don't. Not by their own choice. Monica and Michael had no money, none of their belongings, no car, no pagers, no way to start a new life, as the true crime trope so often goes. So we'll begin with the scant paperwork that we do have. A Glen County Police Department incident report dated June 24, 1989. The location? 5700 Ultima Avenue, Brunswick, Georgia, the Heritage Apartments, which are now called Merritt Landing. The report states a clear complaint. Parents advise police of two runaway juveniles. The report is logged by the responding officer at 12.13 a.m. According to Glen County Police Department, on June 22nd at 8.50 p.m., two teenage siblings, Monica and Michael Bennett, had voluntarily disappeared. The complainants are their mother, Jane, and her husband, John. He's the father of Michael and their younger sisters and stepfather to Monica and their older sister, Sheila. Their driver's licenses list separate addresses, with John's in Alabama and Jane's in Brunswick, Georgia, at a rental house. Neither address is in the Heritage Apartments, where the children are reported missing. So who lived there? That should be a simple question, but like everything else in this story, the answer is difficult to pin down. The official incident narrative is as follows. Except for the department's redactions, this is directly from Glynn County's report. Quote, Names redacted went off with their father so that they could help him move out. The parents are getting a divorce. Their father called her at 8.30 asking if she had seen them. He stated that he dropped them off at the apartment at 1300 and had to run some errands. When he returned, they were gone and he had not seen them since. End quote. The few news reports we've managed to dig up, which were all released in the late 2000s after the case had been reclassified and was once again under active investigation, state that it was Monica and Michael's family apartment, 
and that their father was moving out. This was not the case. In fact, it was a completely separate residence. Their mother had gotten her own place at the beginning of the summer. At the time, she had decided to separate from her husband. He lived alone in the apartment, and he had plans to move to Alabama. The apartment was largely empty. Monica and Michael did not live there, or even with their mother. After the events of that summer, ones that will become evident over the course of the series, they had moved in with relatives. Monica was at her biological father's house, and Michael had gone to his half-siblings and John's first wife. Michael was born when John was still married to his first wife, and yet she didn't hold it against Michael. She treated him like another son. We know less about Monica's father. We're told he was a drinker and that she only would live there if the options were scarce. So Monica and Michael weren't living with the people who reported them missing. There's no mention of that anywhere in the official record. And as far as open records allow, that meager paragraph is the truth as the county knew it then. A short description, a few redacted names, three addresses, and a series of questions that should have been asked. And maybe they were, though there was no further investigation at that time. Why, if the teenagers went missing on June 22nd, were they reported missing at midnight on June 24th? Why were they reported to have been helping pack up an apartment that was, according to their siblings, already empty? Anyone interested in true crime knows that the 1980s and 90s were, in terms of child disappearances, a vastly different landscape. Runaways were not endangered. In many jurisdictions, there was the default assumption for teenagers who never came home. They wanted to be gone. For the parents to have reported them as missing made the case simply that, a report and not an investigation. Were there bolos issued? Maybe, but the general public would never have seen them or been aware of them, and there are no records we can access. Though the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children had been founded in 1984, it was not the information powerhouse then that it is now. Even if it had been, Monica and Michael would likely not have been a priority. It may not have mattered that they were black. Then again, it might have affected the initial perceptions of their disappearance or the willingness to accept the runaway theory. If we think back to that term bandied about so often in the late 20th century police reports, unruly minors, we might get a better sense of how, when resources are stretched thin, teenagers who reportedly took off might get shuffled to the back of the investigative line. In 1989, that was a reality, and we can't go back and rewrite it. We can only try and piece together the fragments of the day they went missing and the weeks that came beforehand. Without media mention until the mid-2000s, we can best do that through the memories of Monica and Michael's family, in particular Sheila, their oldest sister. Why were John and Jane getting divorced? Why were Monica and Michael living with other relatives? Why did their family suddenly pick up and move to Alabama just a few weeks after they went missing? Their parents had reconciled by then, and they took all the younger siblings home to Montgomery. Sheila didn't go with them. In fact, she hadn't lived with her mother or stepfather for quite some time. Though she was only a senior in high school, she was already married and had moved in with her in-laws. She continued at Glen Academy, the same school Monica attended, while she was pregnant with her first child, who was due in July. By the time he arrived, John, Jane, and Sheila's remaining siblings were gone. Sheila didn't see them again for years. It was months before they even spoke, and then, haltingly, and over the phone, about Monica and Michael. 
It wasn't until much later, when Sheila became the official contact person for the case, that she became aware of all of the strange, small details surrounding her brother and sister's disappearance. By that time, her other siblings were older and more able to help her piece together some of the events of June 21st. But even before that day, Sheila knew something wasn't right in Monica and Michael's home. It was late spring 1989 when Monica found her sister at school and asked her to come with her to the guidance counselor's office. It was hard on the sisters to live apart, but they managed by spending lots of time together at school. Monica couldn't wait to meet her new nephew. And though she missed her sister, she was also glad that Sheila had gotten out of the house. Jane met John while he was still married to his first wife, with whom he had two small children. By the time Michael was born, the situation hadn't changed, and Michael took on Jane's then-surname, Bennett. Everyone said that Michael looked just like John, who eventually divorced his first wife and married Jane, and who had four more children with her, all of whom did share his last name. Monica and Michael were the only Bennetts. Maybe that meant something to them, and maybe not. They were close in age, but perhaps not the confidants that Monica and Sheila were. Even with Sheila out of the house, the girls maintained that connection. So when, in 1989, Monica came to her troubled, with none of the carefree humor her family remembers, Sheila wasn't surprised that her sister would seek her out. She immediately understood the seriousness of what Monica had to say, but she couldn't have possibly imagined the series of events that confession would cause, and might have caused. No one could have. Monica came to me one day at school and she told me that our stepfather was trying uh, to, he was making advances toward her sexually um, and she didn't want to go home. And, and so I told her that we should tell somebody. So we end up uh, in the guidance office um, I'm not, sh I don't remember the guidance counselor's name, but I remember her taking us both to the police station. We told what happened. Um, I believe the police took us to our mother's house and uh, told my mom what happened or told my mom what Monica and I had reported to them. Um, I don't believe my stepfather was in the room at the time when the police were there, but I do remember him actually being there. Uh, my mom, after the police told my mom what, what you know we came down there for, she gave him the explanation of Monica just wanting to be out of the house to, she just wanted to get out of the house to go and see a boyfriend um, and that she was being hot or hot in the pants. And, um, and it was kind of like the police just took my mom's uh, reasoning and just left it the way it was. It didn't, didn't, you know, take a, take Monica out of the house because I didn't live there at the time, but you know, he made it 
she made it seem like Monica was lying and that she was just making everything up just to get out of the home. Okay, so the police officer, he leaves. And uh, I know my mom was clearly upset with Monica and was saying, why did she bring the police here? You just want to be fast and go run up behind some boy or something, which I knew wasn't the, I knew that's not what it was. I knew what she said was true. I, I knew what she said was true. And um, I, I know Monica was, she just, I don't know how to describe it. She just looked, it was almost like a defeat. Like we went through all of this for nothing and she still didn't believe us. She just looked real sad and defeated. And I kind of felt the same way. So what happened next? Nothing. No further contact with law enforcement, no state visits, no follow-ups, and Monica still in the house. Sheila tells us that her mother was furious and her stepfather too. But they were furious with Monica. The younger kids didn't understand, with the exception of the fourth oldest, Phoenician. She was 12 at the time, and she shared a bed with Monica. Because of this, she saw the alleged abuse up close. In the following interview, you'll hear Phoenician laughing. And it's not because she thought what was happening was funny. It's simply because that what she alleges was, from what we've learned, part of the normal fabric of their childhood. There are many ways to cope with trauma. I've seen things because she came to me about it. So I don't know if she came to me before she went to the guidance counselor or what. I'm thinking she probably did because, you know, she she would wake me up in the middle of the night and tell me, you know, my dad dad is coming in the room trying to wake her up. Was she trying to get in bed with you so that with two she could be protected? Yeah, and then at first I would, I used to sleep um, next to the wall. But then she started putting me on the end, <laughs> and she would sleep against the wall. Mm-hmm. And then she had told me about it, and you know, that's my sister. And when she first mentioned it to me, I believed her, and I was like, what? And stuff, but, and she, I was like, well, when the next time he do it, wake me up. And she was like, okay, that's what, I, that's what we're gonna do. And so then, the next morning, she looked at me and she was like, you ain't wake up. <laughs> and I was like, I ain't you. And um, so then I was like, i tell you what, I had this dollhouse. It was made out of uh, tin. And I had, I had a dollhouse and I said, okay, what I'm gonna do is we're gonna put the dollhouse in front of the door. And if he come in, he gonna trip over it and I'm gonna wake up. And so she went, okay, yeah, we're gonna do that then. So we did that. And then she woke me up and, and he came in and when she woke me up, she, and he ran out the room and I saw the dollhouse tilted over and she was like, that worked it and stuff. So <laughs> I knew then, but then it was times uh, when my, my mom had um, left him and she left us with him. And, um, it was all, Tara was over. 
and um, we was all in the room talking, you know, playing and joking around. And he came in there, and he was like, y'all go to bed, and this you stay in the room. And I was like, you know, I'm already guard already up from things I saw, and I was like, well, he's going to single me out from everybody. I wasn't the only one in here laughing. So everybody went in the living room to go to bed, and I was in the room, and when he went back in the room, I just politely got up and went in there with everybody else and went to bed. And then later on that night, I was asleep, and so it was like rubbing me on my face, like trying to wake me up. And I was like, and I woke up, and I looked, and I ain't see anybody, and everybody asleep. And, um, and I had closed my eyes back, and then somebody touched me on my face again, and then I woke up. I opened my eyes, and I saw, that's when I started waking up everybody, and I was like, okay, somebody in here. And as soon as I did that, he had got up off the floor. He was laying on the floor. And he got up and he ran in a room. I was about 16. Yeah, about 15, 16. And mom, and, and then after that, I was mad. I was. I was mad because I was like, why she left us with him? How you gonna leave four girls with him? And I would call myself trying to protect the other three because I always kept them around me. I always kept them busy, kept them in the room and he didn't all like that. He didn't. used to get mad, we used to stay in the room all day. One is led to wonder, who knew that dollhouse story? Did any of the adults ever acknowledge it? We know that none of that came out in any public sense, not then and not for years afterward. Law enforcement must have known some of this, and the FBI was at one point involved. But how much was shared? In some cases, the remaining siblings had never compared notes on their own experiences, not until they gathered to be interviewed for this podcast. In 1989, the family skirted around Monica's accusation and around that visit from law enforcement. Monica was in trouble, and then the subject was dropped. And Michael? Well, he didn't believe the story. He couldn't believe it. He was so fond of John, a man who was adored by his younger children and extended family, and who was something of a hero to his two sons. Remember, Michael was barely 14 and in a house teeming with sisters. He wasn't old enough to know some of the stories from Sheila's childhood. He'd grown up with an uncle, Jake, who lived with them on and off, even after being accused of molesting one of his nieces, and then of molesting other children, too. Normal is a construct that each family builds of its own unique materials. As his sisters tell it, Monica was angry with Michael, and that lasted for a while. In fact, it lasted until he stumbled upon the alleged abuse and apparently saw John molesting Monica himself. If the guidance counselor's visit is the first defining act of that summer, then this, Michael's discovery, is the second. Because we're told that he went to his mother, and that, faced with three of her children making the same claim, she could no longer ignore the accusations. Within weeks, she would separate from her husband. We're told that he moved out and got his own place, one of the Heritage Apartments, now called Merritt's Landing. 
It would only be a matter of time until Monica and Michael disappeared from that very same apartment. There's so much more to tell and to ask, like this. Why would two teenagers who had already moved out need to run away? Unruly children isn't a sensical answer to that question, and it doesn't begin to explain all of the other discrepancies and oddities. The delay in reporting, the lack of clarity in the official record regarding who lived there and why and how Monica and Michael made it to that apartment, or who was there with them, or why, within weeks, John and Jane were back together and loading their four younger children on a bus to Alabama, leaving town even as Monica and Michael's case, such as it was, remained open. Some claim that Monica might have taken off with a boyfriend, but what about Michael? Where would he have remained hidden for 28 years? Join us next time as we continue the story of Monica and Michael Bennett and what may have happened to them in the summer of 1989. We'll have more details on the days leading up to and the day of their disappearance. There are rumors, accusations, and even whispers of involvement from the Miami Boys, a once powerful gang that had moved up the East Coast and throughout the South on the crest of the crack epidemic. Before we go, we want to offer several updates in the Millbrook case. To date, our listeners have raised $2,122 in a reward that Richmond County Sheriff's Office has committed to match. And two businesses, Encompass Podcast Studio of Atlanta, Georgia, and the Osteen Law Firm of Henley, Georgia, the business of Joel and Stephanie Osteen, have each stepped up to offer a reward in the case. Each business has committed to a $2,500 reward, which brings our total to a little over $9,000. More if Richmond County chooses to double all contributions. Shantae, Ms. Louise, and their entire family want to express their heartfelt gratitude for the outpouring of support that they have received, whether in the form of kind comments on you caring, or Facebook, or through Augusta locals who have sponsored billboards, attended vigils, or worked to keep media focused on the case. You can support the fall line by supporting our sponsors, ZipRecruiter and Stamps.com and by using our promo codes when you take advantage of their services. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a moment to rate it five stars on iTunes and stay subscribed as we investigate the disappearance of George's missing. If you'd like to reach us, email us at falllinepodcast at gmail.com, call the voice line at 404-590-2975, or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Most importantly, share the story of Monica and Michael Bennett wherever and whenever you can. Fall Line, an investigative podcast focusing on unsolved cases in the Southeast, is back this August with Season 5. This series covers the 1998 disappearance of Shykemia Pate, an 8-year-old from Unadilla, Georgia. As a little girl, I can remember that uh, Shasha was very energetic and bubbly. Seldom did you see her without a smile. She had a beautiful smile. She, she was just a real bubbly, smart, smart little girl. Shykemia was excited to spend that Labor Day weekend with her family, starting with attendance of the first high school football game of the season. 
In their tiny town of Unadilla, Georgia, that was a big event. That Friday afternoon, Shaikimia stepped off her front porch and onto the sidewalks of the street she'd lived on her whole life. She planned to wait outside for a ride from her older sister. She was seen by neighbors, friends, family. Everyone thought she'd made it to see the Dooley County Bobcats play. But she never made it there. And so I thought Swan had took her to the game until 1230 that night when Veronica called me and told me, she called me, she asked me, what's shy with me? And I said, no, nah. I said, you mean you don't know what shy at? I caught the police, but nobody, he didn't come. And then when he did come, he said she had to be missing 24 hours before they'll go looking for her. Shaikimia Pate vanished right off her own street. Though her disappearance is as mysterious and as arresting as that of Madeline McCann, she has received very little attention. Despite a $20,000 reward and exhaustive work by Shakimia's family, Veronica Pate, her mother, has been left waiting for 21 years. She made an effort to be optimistic that, that Shia would be back. She kept trying to prove that it's going to be all right, leaving the door unlocked, leaving a light on, because Shia Shia coming home. Each hour in the missing person's case matters. So what about a cold case unsolved for decades? Some of the things that we run into working cold cases is that these cases, I mean, they're old and um, people's memory is not what they used to be. Memories fade, people die. Few outside of rural middle Georgia have ever heard of Shaikimia Pate. But maybe, with your help, that can change. This season on the fall line from Exactly Right, we work with Shaikimia's family, the local sheriff, and the Georgia Bureau of Investigations to produce detailed coverage of her case and generate new leads. 2019 has seen decades-old cold cases come to a close. And so it's time to give Shaikimia's open case and her mother's open door the attention they needed, deserved, years ago. This is The Fall Line. We hope you'll join us on August 7th for Episode 1, September 4th, 1998.